That's great. Thank you. And put them out on hire, you know. <laughs> read, read the scripture in all your churches. Uh, that's great. Thank you very much. Let's pray together. Lord, bless uh, not only that reading, but also our hearing of your word preached, we pray in this important passage of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Leonard Ravenhill once said, there's no greater tragedy than a sick church in a dying world. I think if there's anything our world needs today, it's a healthy church. And the church, part of the power of that is a church on mission in the world is a, a sign of a healthy church. And if you go back in history and you look at all of the great renewal movements of the church through history, you'll find that as amazingly it begins with the people of God rediscovering the gospel themselves. It's one of the great needs today. The Reformation in the 16th century was really all a conversation among Christians. It was Christians who were responding to the gospel, people who had already identified themselves as Christians who heard the gospel in a new way. Later in the 17th century, happened again with pietism. Happened again in the 18th century, the Western revivals. It's happened again in the 20th century with Pentecostalism. All of these movements were addressed first to the church itself, which had to rehear the gospel. And then they could be equipped and empowered to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting that on the day of Pentecost that Peter, of all his texts, he chooses the prophecy of Joel, which was read uh, as part of that text today. And it's amazing because Joel is one of those prophets, uh, which I think forms a nice little cadre of prophets, which are particularly important for us today. Because it was the prophets that spoke at time of exile, a time when everything seemed to be going crazy. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, and Joel. Those are the pre-exilic exilic and post-exilic prophets. These are the ones that are giving us words of hope in the midst of a lot of discouragement, a lot of challenge and difficulties. If you look at Joel, the text that, from which uh, Peter speaks, let's go to the beginning of that whole passage. Joel is calling everyone to repentance. Now, I did a little survey of people that Joel calls to repentance in the prophecy of Joel, and I listed them out here for you. Old people, young people, men, women, children, drunkards, farmers, servants, priests, Jews, non-Jews, nation under covenant, nations not under covenant. He kind of covers the whole scope, right? He is calling everyone to repentance. It's like Joel is crying out saying to everyone, you're going the wrong way. Yahweh is that way. The covenant is that way. He's really marshalling the people of God who are all running in the wrong direction, and he calls them to repentance. And yet in the midst of that, this is what I love about Joel, in the midst of all of this disaster, I mean, armies are compared, the invading armies are compared to locusts that just come in and just... You know, just devouring everything they cherished. The temple, of course, would be destroyed. Everything up, all that they cherished was gone. He looks up in chapter 2, and this is the text that, of course, Peter quotes. He looks up and he sees a day. And it's really powerful when you can look up in the midst of the rubble and see something that God is doing. And he says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. He said, on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. 
Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days. I love the fact that Joel could look up and see a vision of God's spirit being poured out on all flesh in the midst of the challenges that he faced. Now, Jeremiah is similarly, Jeremiah is in a situation where he's actually seen the invasions of the Babylonian armies. Now, when you read about it, you know, from like cursory of church history or, or, or Jewish history, you think about it, Babylonians like just showed up on Tuesday, you know, when they took over. But actually, it's a long process, a lot of invasions, a lot of challenges, a lot of, you know, the, uh, humiliating the kings of Israel. And Jeremiah watched all of this kind of degrading process throughout much of his life. And so finally, the time came when, when the armies did show up in full force, and they completely sacked the city of Jerusalem. Everything they saw and cherished was being destroyed. The people of God are being literally put on carts in chains and hauled away to a foreign land. And Jeremiah does something. I don't know if you notice it because you can kind of read over it and not realize the, the power of it. But he does something that is the absolute last thing you would ever do in this situation. If an invading army is going to come in and literally cart you away and haul you off to a foreign country and take over all your land and property and everything, the last thing you would do is buy some land. But Jeremiah decides this is a good time to buy some land. And Jeremiah goes and he, in chapter 32, verse 9 of Jeremiah, he buys a piece of land, the field of Anathoth from his cousin Hanamel. He purchases a deed. It goes through the whole thing about the deed and Baruch. They stamp it. It's all, you know, made, made clear. And they bury it. And this is what he says. Because they're like, why are you doing this? You're crazy. They're putting the chains on him. I just bought that land over there. He's because this, what the Lord Almighty says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be sold in this land. See, he's looking for a day beyond the day he was in. You know, do you believe the day will come where once again we'll plant churches in this land? That once again we'll evangelize and spread scripture holiness throughout the land? You see, this is the ability to look beyond where we are to see what God is doing and what God is unfolding. Because the gospel, as Jeffrey said, the gospel goes right on. People can, you know, rise up. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar hates his furnace seven times hotter. But God has those who will not bow to the idols of this world. Jeremiah looks for the day when a covenant we made where he'll write the law on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 31. So he looks for a day, that day they can't even imagine at the time. But he believed that day would come. And all of this happens and comes together on the day of Pentecost. This is what we might call not simply when the text says when the day of Pentecost came. It's not simply a chronological time, the, the Greek word chronos. It's the Greek word kairos. It's the, it means an opportune time. This is a God, time when God just chose to do something. Now, Pentecost, of course, is the word, if you don't know the meaning of the word, it means 50 or 50th. So the way it worked is that you have uh, Pentecost. I'm sorry, the, the Passover happened. They left Egypt. They go through the wilderness uh, for, for uh, 50 days. On the 50 day, 50th day, that's when they go to Mount Sinai and receive the law. So the Jews in their kind of liturgical structure, they celebrated Passover at this point, and they celebrated Pentecost 50 days later. So it was called 50th, 50 days after Passover. Now, God, 
I know that if you're from the, you're, you're from the Assemblies of God, Church of God, Church, like Church of God, the Church of God, I don't know how they feel about the liturgical calendar, all right? But it's kind of like low on the totem pole, all right? I, and by the way, you know, everybody's different on these kind of things. So I, don't hear me as saying God is like liturgical, but God does take notice of the calendar. It's interesting. God, at this point at least, God decides to become liturgical because uh, Easter, of course, Christ is crucified at the Passover, right? It's not a mistake. You know, think he could have been crucified any time. Crucified at the Passover at the same time they sacrificed the sacrificial lambs. And then, of course, he raises from the dead. He goes through 40 days uh, of teaching, you know, the disciples in that period. And then he ascends into heaven on the 40th day. And there's 10 days of waiting until the day of Pentecost. Now, we're going to come back to the waiting a bit. But God waits on the liturgical calendar because Pentecost was the day that they the law was written on stones, and this is the day the law will be written on our hearts. The Spirit of God is part of His purpose is to write God's law on your hearts, to write His work into your heart and life. It's one of the great Wesleyan emphases. It's not enough to simply be justified and forgiven. God actually wants to change your heart and redirect our hearts towards Him. So they, they have this. And uh, now I, I don't know if I've ever heard um, a sermon on the 10 days in my entire life. You, you know, you're so anxious to get to the Pentecost, you don't think about the 10 days of waiting. If you were put, you know, I don't know, Joe, if you've ever done this with your staff, so okay, we're all going to go into a you know, room and wait for 10 days, you might get a little pushback. What are we going to do? All right. What were they doing? Were they shooting pool? I doubt it. Were they drinking coffee? I doubt it. What, what are they doing? It's really important. What are they doing those 10 days? They are, they are in a period of prayerful, I would say almost desperation prayers. He's, they've been, people have been locked up. They were behind, remember how they were locked behind locked doors for fear of the Jews? This is not shooting pool. This is a time of desperation for God, and they have no idea what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Some of us understand this kind of holy desperation period. And so I want to tell you that they, this is a, the best way to describe Pentecost is this is God's intervention of disruption. Brothers and sisters, you've been warned. Don't get filled with the Holy Spirit. It will ruin things forever. It'll ruin church for you forever. You thought church was getting having a good committee meetings. You thought church was having a good finished building campaign. You thought church was surviving a general conference. But I tell you what, getting filled with the Holy Spirit will disrupt all of that. And by the way, it'll ruin seminary for you forever. You know, one of the problems with Asbury, and this is, a, this is, a, this is the great problem of Asbury, and I have done this. I have compared all the mission statements of all the major seminaries in the country. Just what are they, how do they compare to ours? We have this very disruptive statement. Every seminary in the country is basically going to tell you, and these different flowery language, essentially, we are committed to theologically educate you. That's great. That is really great. But Asbury goes on to say, we want theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women. 
to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. That means we want to meddle in your heart. We really believe that you cannot be effective in the ministry if you're only theologically educated. It's just not going to happen. What, what good is it if you come to seminary and you have all kinds of bondage in your life, you get massively educated, but you go out and you still have those bondages? You see, it doesn't transform the world. Part of the gospel is that not only does he change our minds and develop our minds, he also changes and redirects our hearts. Har Asbury is where Harvard meets Hogwarts, you know? It's where you have, <laughs> or something like that, you know, theological education with like other things that happened. I'm not endorsing magic here. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> spirit-filled activity, okay? Give me a little slack here. But when you start seeing fire and windfall, uh, this is about trouble blowing into your life. God wants to blow a lot of things away and burn things away. And he, can, he knows how to do that because, that, you know, there's a fire he wants to light in you that you cannot light on your own. There's a wind he wants to blow into your life that you cannot blow. And there's all kinds of webinars and seminars and stuff you can do that basically help say, we'll take care of it. We're all over this. We'll light this fire for you. We'll blow this wind for you in your church. But it won't happen because there's some things only God can do in the life of the church. And so verse 2, we're told there's suddenly this blowing of a mighty wind of God. Now, for, the, for the, those who hurt and experienced this, there's only two real, um, you know, way they can think about this. One is clearly that first breath of God in creation, where God breathes into his disciples. And we saw in earlier on this, this whole season through the Holy Spirit how God met with his disciples in the upper room just a few days before, and he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He's universalizing what God has already done. The breath of God, the wind of God for the people of God. And of course, the, the breath of God, I uh, think of the new creation, which will destroy all human-based ministries, and only that which is of Christ will remain. And then the fire of God falls. Now, the fire of God for any Jew meant two things. It meant purification, because it fell in sacrifices, like Elijah. It also meant guidance in the wilderness. This is about God guiding us and also purifying us. That's part of the holiness work, is God burning things away. In a previous uh, part of the series, in the Old Testament, we find there are seven major metaphors for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. If you weren't able to hear this sermon, it's, it's online at the, at the website. But essentially, you have the, the dove, the cloud, the fire, the breath, the wind, the water, and oil. Those seven metaphors are embedded in the Old Testament and linked to the work of God, which becomes en enshrined in the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And all seven of those get brought back into the New Testament. So you have Jesus' baptism with the water and the dove, for example. You have Jesus breathing the disciples, the breath in John 20, 22. And of course, here you have the wind and the fire. Uh, later, you'll, with the cloud and the oil will come later on. But all seven of these come back into the New Testament. And here we have it counted right here in the upper room. And then thirdly, of course, the manifestation of tongues. Now tongues, uh, for some churches, can be controversial. 
But let's just talk about it a little bit here. Talk about what this, what this means. I think it's important to ask, what does this mean? Why in the world would on this particular occasion this tongues happen in the upper room? I personally don't think it is as important as we maybe some people think it is that we, uh, you know, how, how whether you personally speak in tongues or not. Paul says, you know, not all speak in tongues. Uh, we're, we're happy with that. But on the other hand, we want to ask ourselves, does the Holy Spirit cause people to speak in tongues? What does this mean? And if you look at the New Testament, look at Acts, there are several points where the Holy Spirit comes down. People do speak in tongues. And there's times where he comes down and they do not speak in tongues. But in this particular case, they're hearing tongues of all of the known languages of the world or many of the regional languages of the world. Uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Pontus, Asia, Cappadocia, Mesopotamia, Judea, Libya, Cyrene, Cretans, Arabs. They heard all these languages being pre proclaimed the boldness of the word of God. And I think there's two things that this reminds, that again, this is part of the calendar of God marking things. One is looking back. That This tongue manifestation is a way of remembering something that everyone in this room must remember, and that is Genesis chapter 11. What happened there? The Tower of Babel. Now, if there ever was an aptly numbered chapter, it is Genesis 11. Chapter 11. It means bankruptcy. This is the chapter of utter bankruptcy. I'm not saying the U.S. tax code chose it for this reason. It's just one of those nice things that happened. But here you have the world pictured as completely bankrupt. You know, they, they, have the, they want to go out and make a name for themselves, build their own city, a tower to heaven, and they get the languages get confused. Okay, this is, this is actually explicitly done in contrast to Abraham, who goes out as a pilgrim. He doesn't make a name for himself. God makes it great, and he looks for a city whose nature and builder is God. So here you are, have this bankruptcy chapter of Genesis 11. And God doesn't forget that, that the world has been confused and the world is warring, the world is against each other. We live in a culture where everyone's pitted against each other, right? We live in a culture where it's, it's a difficult time to negotiate this period. But what we do know is when the gospel comes in, it brings people together. It unites the world all over the world. I literally, in the last three months, I have literally been physically on every inhabited continent of the world. Now, if there were Asburians in Antarctica, I would have even gone there. But we've not yet recruited the penguins down there. But I have been all over the world. And the, the great uh, unity of the church through the ages, all over the church, all over the world, is one of the great facts of the gospel. And so we look back and see how God once again unites the world to the Tower of Babel. And then we look forward uh, through the Pentecost is the, a little glimpse into the new creation where John sees men and women from every tribe and tongue and language worshiping for the Lord. Now this is a great part. And we're in, as this series develops, we're seeing there's three major things the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church. The, the Lord, first of all, has this disruptive power for global witness, which is the theme here. This is sending a mark to the church that the church is for all peoples of all ages all over the world. 
So this is going to break us through into Cornelius' household. All of that gets brought out from this. Uh, Simon, all this comes out in the next few chapters. But this is the day mark. The church is for all people. And someday, men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every language before the Lord. We'll also see the, the Spirit's work to create discerning wisdom, that we are a people of wisdom who can discern things and think about things well. And then thirdly, the, the divine holiness, that purification of holiness in our lives. All these are works of the Holy Spirit, but the first of these is the main one that's emphasized here. And there are going to be going out all over the world. You know, today, there are 2,000 groups, people groups in India who have never heard the gospel. 2,000. There are 444 Chinese groups with no access to the gospel at all. Russia alone has 117. And all of those are fields that must be purchased in faith and hope that God has a plan to bring the gospel to every people group. Our daughter is a missionary in Tanzania, and she, uh, she went to an unreached people group that is uh, so remote. They don't speak the language of anyone in Tanzania. They have their own language. They're, they're actually not even the same, uh, like, family tree. The, uh, this part of Africa is Bantu peoples. These are Cushitic peoples. So they actually come down from, from the, uh, uh, just what today would be Sudan, kind of the Horn of Africa. So uh, they're, here they are uh, for centuries located now in this part of Africa. They don't speak a, the language of those around them. And if my daughter travels to the nearest village, which is four hours away, that village has never heard that they exist. All right, so I, even their own even their own people don't know they're there. I mean, their own country. All right? There's no, of course, no electricity, no running water. There's nothing. There's nothing there like that. And so it just amazes me that God sends Christians to places like that. And when the, when they, when the first, she's been there for almost 10 years. And the first several years, of course, you're learning the language. So when she, uh, they, after two or three years, they decided to have their first preaching of the gospel. And so uh, when that happened, they, the, the team decided they wanted Bethany, our daughter, to, to do the first sermon in the history of the world in the Alaguisa language. So she worked hard, you know, preparing for this and all that. And the day came. And so there are churches in distant villages. I mean, these are four or five hours away that knew this was happening because they'd shared it with them. And they decided to send over delegations to support them on her very first service of worship in the history of the world when the Alaguisa people, the, the Alagua people. So uh, there were probably about 35 that came. The problem is nobody that came knew the language. There are only three people from that tribe that actually came into that service that day. So Bethany, uh, and I don't know where, where's Dawn, but uh, Bethany is kind of like the... Uh, Dawn person too. She like is good with music and worship and all that. So she had written there you are, Dawn. She had written several songs in the uh Alaguisa language. Well, during the worship period, two of the three people got up and walked out. Not a very good start to the worship service. <laughs> so here's Bethany. When the time comes for her to preach, she realized, okay, there's 30 people there, but 29 of them do not know the language. There's only one man that was there that actually knew the language she was about to preach in. And so she thought, you know, should I, she's doing later, you know, like, should I go ahead with it? Should we, if I, like today, if we had it and Jeffrey was there by himself, like, should we go ahead with it, Jeff, you know, I mean, or should we cancel out because no one showed up? 
So she said, you know, I, I decided to go ahead and go for it. So she preached, uh, she preached from a text in Hebrews, she preached the gospel the very first time to one man. And, you know, I told her, I said, you know, Bethany, I said, isn't it, says something the gospel, that God would take somebody to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel to one man? Because for God so loved the world, and nobody's outside that circle. Nobody's outside that circle. That the whole point of all of this is the church, when it rediscovers who we are, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's the power of the gospel. I want to close before our prayer time by um, sharing a minister I had. I, I was once a pastor in a, in a city uh, called Haverhill, Massachusetts, West Congregational Church. And uh, the year I was appointed there to serve, uh, we had the, the dubious honor. Uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts was voted as the worst city in America to live in. And when it came out, and it came out literally like the first like month or two I was in the in the in that position, and I, it was struck me because I, I never realized how demoralizing it would be, because this was like you know a national poll and all that, you know, and they they people who put these polls don't realize what it's like to be in that position because they were actually talking about all the top ten, all that, but everybody put their finger down. Okay, and, oh my goodness, that's us. We're, we're the we're the the worst city in America to live in. Now, Haverhill, Massachusetts. If you don't know that city, it's on the Merrimack River. And in the year, 100 years earlier, 20% of all shoes in America were made in Haverhill. It was the shoe capital of the world. They also made hats. I mean, this place it was just, the, the river was just long with factories doing textiles, you know, hats, shoes, all of that. Amazing place, just buzzing activity. Well, by the time I got there, you know how many shoes are made in Haverhill? None. Empty all those factories on the, on, the, on the river were closed down. Unemployment was massively high. There's drugs. It was just, the whole place was a disaster zone. And everybody kind of instinctively knew that it was a horrible place to live, but we never realized like we really were. Like we really were, this really is the worst place to live. I mean, you know, you, know, you always wonder, surely it's like, you know, if I grew up in Georgia, we all praise God for Alabama, you know, because there's always, you know, somebody, Mississippi, or you know, we're, we're like 48th on something, you know, oh, good, you know. But we were the worst. And so, but that church, that was right in the heart of all of that, was a church that had this amazing encounter with the Holy Spirit. And this church became, was truly what I call spirit-filled, you know, and they were, they were about their work. And so they would, every week they'd bring in people from the streets and all over the place, and they would bring them forward, and they would uh, be thought, I, I literally, when I preached on Sunday morning, I would have to step over bodies to get to the pulpit almost every week. People would just prostrate before God. It was that kind of thing going on. Well, this one guy, and this is the, toward the end here, my closing sermon, this one guy, he was tattooed from head to toe. He was very tattooed. And he came to Christ. Now, God saves people with tattoos. It's part of God's plan. God, God loves everybody, including people with tattoos. And he was just gloriously, he'd been involved with drugs, and all kinds of, he was gloriously converted. And he became just a bright light in that church. But a week or two, I think it was the, maybe the next week or second week after he got saved, I saw him in the hallway when I came in the church. Pastor, he says, I got something to show you. I said, sure. He says, he says, come into the bathroom. I'm like, what? 
Okay, I had never in my life been asked my parishioner to go into the bathroom with him. But I said, well, okay, Joe, let's go in. You know, this is a guy that when he, when he first got saved, when he first came to the Bible the first week, I noticed that the marker in his Bible was a jack of diamonds. Okay, I mean, that, that said a lot to me, you know. So we, we go into the bathroom, and thank other people were in there. And I was like, okay, what do you, you want to show me? So he started to unbutton his shirt, all right? And he opened up his shirt, and there on his chest, he had tattooed a, a, a cross with Jesus Christ as Lord on it. He got, a he got one more tattoo. And I thought, I thought wow, that's, that's awesome. You know, that's what's wonderful. He said, I wanted to be marked for Jesus. I have all these tattoos that say all kinds of things. He said, but I want this main tattoo to be Jesus Christ as Lord. And so I thought to myself, you know, that's really what the Holy Spirit does to us. He wants you to be marked. The day of Pentecost was a marking. It redirects your heart, gives your heart for the global church, the global witness of the church. It burns away all that is lacking in our lives that need to be burned away, and he equips us for ministry. That's all that Pentecost is about. Whatever it is, I can only promise one thing. It will be disruptive. The minute the church tries to say, these three things automatically happen, that's when they try to create order. The Spirit will blow things away. His fire will fall. And the real question is, do we want that? Do we long for that? Let's pray together. Lord, we just come before you now, and we pray that you would ready our hearts. And maybe people in this room that need a, a, a prayer, need a, a touch from the Holy Spirit, that would say, Lord, may your fire fall down on me. May your wind blow through my life. Lord, if that's that, you know, the heart, it's there today. Now you touch that heart this day. In Jesus' name, amen.